We're going to be in Nehemiah. It's a book in the Old Testament, so if you need your finding way there, you should do that. We're going to kind of do a little overview of the whole book, so we're not going to read every verse, obviously, but it's an interesting story. I want to kind of begin with um, your passion, because Nehemiah, he kind of gets a burr under his saddle, and he gets passionate about something, and he has to make it happen. And people are that way. If you get really passionate about something, then you hardly can sleep without figuring out how to make this certain thing happen. And so um, I, I want to start with, there's a, a magazine called Booksellers, and they look at, you know, they have like awards, the best-selling book and that kind of thing. They also do a category, and, and they call it Oddest Book Title of the Year. And the rules are this. It has to be a work of nonfiction, and it has to be, they have to deem it as a serious effort at writing a book. Okay, so it has to be something that somebody just didn't kind of, they weren't silly about it, they, they do it uh, because they are interested in it. So I'm going to give you some of these titles, uh, most uncommon book titles. Highlights in the history of concrete. Uh, so somebody was passionate enough to write about concrete. Lawnmowers, an illustrated history. I'm not going to lie. I would, I would look at that one. That, that one kind of makes it uh, interesting. All dogs have ADHD. That, somebody figured that out. How to sharpen a pencil. I, I'm going to tell you the truth. If you need that book, I mean, you may, you may need more than just that book. Uh, Soviet bus stops. The illustrated history of metal lunchboxes. And butchering livestock at home. Now, somebody was passionate enough about those particular issues or, or those items to write a book about it. And the truth of the matter is, passion drives people. You all know people that are passionate about stuff. And, and it could be the Second Amendment, or it could be politics, or it could be a, a football or a, a, a basketball team in, in Dwayne's case. I mean, you can be passionate about stuff. And people are passionate about... Uh, I, I was around some folks in uh, Michigan that were passionate about fostering and, and adoption. And, uh, and you, you're around people that, when they're really passionate about it, what's funny is, they want you to be passionate about it too. Now, uh, some of the things uh, I'm re I resonate with. I mean, you can be really, really passionate about it, and I might be passionate about it too. Or you might be really, really passionate about it, and I might not be, and it's... You have to understand, if you have a passion for something that the other person might not be as passionate as you are. And so, that brings us to Nehemiah. He is, honestly, let, kind of let me give you the backstory of where we are in history, okay? Because it's kind of important to know where you are. Um, about 1300 B.C., Moses leads the Israelites out of Egypt, and they establish the Promised Land around 1300 B.C. Okay, so I know Moses didn't lead them into the Promised Land, but he led them to the cusp of the Promised Land. And then they went in with Joshua. And they uh, are sort of ruled by God for a while. And then the kings come along. And that's about 300 years later, about 1000 B.C. You begin with the kings and you have Saul. And then you have David. And David is sort of the greatest king. And he is the one, the apex of the country sort of happens under the reign of David. And then his son Solomon, also a great reign. It's more of a, um, they have a lot of territory, uh, they have a lot of wealth. But at the end of Solomon's life, it begins to sort of wane. 
the, the, the nation sort of reaches its apex with David. And then Solomon is still pretty strong, but it's kind of going downhill. And so then the kings sort of, the, the, the kingdom gets divided and they kind of go crazy. And then in about around 600 BC, uh, 587 to be exact, uh, the Babylonians invade and they conquer the Jews, they conquer the Israelites, and they destroy Jerusalem, and they exile a lot of the leading people, the, the, the best and the brightest. We saw a little bit of that last week. And then about 100 years after that, the Persians conquer the Babylonians. It's too much history, sorry. I, I, that's four things. I, I didn't, that's too much, I'm sorry. But anyway, the, the, the important thing about the Persians invading and kind of knocking the Babylonians off is they allowed some of the exiles to go back to the country, go back to Israel. And that's kind of where we find ourselves with Nehemiah. Now, Nehemiah, uh, Ezra, and Esther are all kind of in the same time. They're contemporaries of one another. And Ezra is this great prophet, and Nehemiah is a dude with a job. He is the cupbearer for the king. It doesn't sound <laughs> that impressive. Uh, actually, I mean, if you had a resume and you're a cupbearer, I mean, I, I don't know. It doesn't seem super impressive. However, uh, a cupbearer's job was to, to sample the wine before the king drank it. That was his job. That was, and it was more than just to see if it tasted good. You know, to see if it's ripple or, you know, or is it really good stuff. So uh, he was to see not only if it tasted good, but uh, was it poisoned? Uh, a lot of nefarious things go on when you're the king and people are trying to take you out and you have to sleep with one eye open. And so uh, you wanted a cupbearer that you could trust. And you never had to ask a cupbearer if he had a good day or not. If he lived through the day, he had a good day. That was kind of, uh, he, he lived through the day or he died. Uh, that was his job. Now, because he, he's sort of like secret service for the president. And because he risked his life for the king, often there was this relationship that developed between the king and the cupbearer. Because the cupbearer was, he was laying it all on the line for the king. I mean, he was willing to risk his life for the king. And, and there are uh, examples in history of the cupbearer actually becoming second in command of kingdoms because he became a confidant to the king. So here you have Nehemiah, who is a Jewish guy who is in exile. He lives in a town called Susa, S-U-S-A. And he is important. I mean, the cupbearer doesn't sound like it's important, but it's pretty important. You have the ear of the king. The king trusts you. In this case, the king trusted him. And so, if you're going to be in exile... To be the cupbearer, to be influential in the kingdom, to be a confidant of the king, isn't a bad thing. And so Nehemiah, if for all intents and purposes, has a pretty good life. And that's where you sort of pick up the story. Nehemiah 1, you have to understand Nehemiah is in a pretty good place, but then Nehemiah 1, 1 happens. And so that's where we're going to pick up the story. In the month of Kislev, and that's going to be important in just a second, I'll tell you why. In the 20th year, while I was at the citadel in Susa, Hanani, one of my brothers, came from Judah 
with some other men, and I questioned them about the Jewish remnant that survived the exile and also about Jerusalem. So uh, I call my mother a couple times a week, and we talk about things, uh, life, and you know, I'm from Danville, my mother still lives in Danville, Kentucky, and so we'll talk about hey, what's going on in Danville sometimes, and and you know, like what you know, what uh, stores are moving in, what stores are closing. We talk about that occasionally, and who who has died, and who had a baby, and I mean, you have that that conversation. You all do that if you're from somewhere, or you see somebody you haven't seen for a while, you catch up. So here you have Nehemiah, and one of his brothers comes, and he catches up. It's like family gossip a little bit, and he says, "Hey, man, how's it going back uh, in in Israel?" Uh, the promised land. Uh, how, how's it going in uh, back home? Really the question. And, and the answer didn't please him. They said to me, those who survived the exile are, in back in the, or are back in the province are in great trouble and disgrace. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down and its gates have been burned with fire. That's really important. You have to understand. I mean, we read that and it's like, so? I mean, the wall's broken down, big deal. Um, the, the wall was your means of protection in the ancient world. And if your wall was broken down, that means you were vulnerable to any invasion from anybody. And, and that's why the word disgrace is used. It was disgraceful to have a city and not a wall. And you see it's disgrace in the way that Nehemiah responds. When I heard these things, I sat down... And I wept. Um, Nehemiah is discouraged. I don't know if you ever get discouraged, but I do occasionally. And I guess, you know, out of sight, out of mind, that's a saying, right? And so he didn't know about this, but now he learns about this. And he's troubled. And he sits and he weeps. And God promised Israel, the very first... First guy that kind of established the kingdom was a guy named Abraham. And God said to Abraham, hey, he said this, uh, you will surely become a great powerful nation and all nations on earth will be blessed through him. And he, uh, the nation was falling far short of being influential in the world. Uh, it would be like, you know, Jesus said to us, um, uh, I'm going to build my church and the gates of hell uh, can't withstand it. And then if you look at the church and we're not being effective, then it would be similar to that. And so you have Nehemiah, and you have to understand his condition here. His mental condition is, we as Jews are supposed to be influential in all the world. All nations are to be blessed because of us. And it simply isn't the case. And we're not living up to our expectations. And whatever you have a passion about, um, let's say you have a passion for justice. And anytime it, injustice happens, it breaks you a little bit more inside. Um, it, it, it's like being a fighter, and, and it's a punch that just sort of takes your breath away. And Nehemiah has his breath taken away, and he is he's heartbroken by this. Now, you all remember there was a, a cartoon character named Popeye, and before he started selling delicious chicken, uh, he uh, was a cartoon character, and he had a saying. Does anybody know what it was? I am what I am. There's another one, but yes, Lance, good for you. 
it's not the right answer, but it's really not the wrong answer. So thank you for, for your effort. He said, that's all I can stand. I can't stand no more. And something would, he, would, he would see something that uh, sort of irked him, and that's what he would say. It's all I can stand. I can't stand no more. And that's sort of the Nehemiah place. He hears about this, and it's like, okay, I can do nothing, or <laughs> I can make something happen. And so let's look at the life lessons from Nehemiah. Number one, first, godly passion drives godly people. Uh, he saw this and it says, when I heard these things, I sat down and wept. And you can look in history and see people who, they see something that they just can't stand anymore. And they have to do something about it. I think of William Wilberforce. Back in the 1800s, uh, Slavery was rampant in England, and, and he just couldn't stand it as a Christian. He couldn't bear it. And for years and years and years, he pummeled. He just sort of just kept hammering uh, the, the government to, to abolish slavery. And toward the end of his life, it was finally abolished. It was one guy on a mission and had passion, and it was like, I cannot stand this anymore. I, I think of Millard Fuller. He's the guy that started Habitat for Humanity. And he just he saw people who didn't have a roof over their heads and he couldn't stand it anymore. And he had to do something about it. There's a guy named Bill Wilson. And he saw how alcohol had ravaged his life. And so he started something called Alcoholics Anonymous. He saw a problem and he just couldn't stand it anymore. And he had to do something about it. And so sometimes the question for you is, is God giving you a passion for anything that you should do something about? Now, like it should annoy you, but not everything can annoy you. If everything annoys you, you're just grumpy. And don't be that way. And it can't be somebody just driving in the left lane. I mean, I know that annoys us, but it's got to be something bigger than that. So what can you have a passion for? Because godly passion drives godly people to do certain things. Now, the first step, if you've been driven to do something, is before you act, you pray. Now look at what he says here. For some days I mourned and I fasted and I prayed before the God of heaven. We don't fast very much, but let me talk about it just for a second. Or I don't know. I mean, I don't fast very much. Maybe you fast all the time. You should come tell me because I'd like to know about it. We can, there's lots of ways to fast. You can fast from food. That's the, the, sort of the obvious one. And that, whenever I've fasted, it reminds me of what it feels like to not have food. And I'm reminded that there are places in the world, and there are places in our country, where people don't have enough food. And so it brings that to mind, and while I'm feeling those pangs of hunger, it allows me to pray for that situation. It kind of brings it to mind. It makes it real. Um, I would suggest you fast from media for a while. If you've never had a media fast, go for two, three days without looking at the news. It'll, it'll, it, it's like a, a, it cleanses your soul. I mean, it really would be great. Uh, maybe, I mean, that's the, that's the beauty of, uh, of, of the Advent, not Advent season, the season before, um, before Easter, where we, where we just kind of maybe give something up for 40 days. We, we just say, I'm not going to do this. So my, my daughters do this, uh, several of them. Uh, one time they gave up chocolate. You know, Every year I give up cheering for Duke basketball uh, uh, because that's easy for me. You've know, you got to give up something. You know. So when you give something up, 
It helps you um, appreciate it more, uh, pray for it more. And, and so Nehemiah is so driven by this. But, but he just doesn't act. He, he does something. He's proactive. Prayer is proactive. Now, now look. In the month of Nisan, now remember there was another month we talked about it a minute ago. Uh, this is four months later. So he prays about doing something for four months. This is remarkable to me. If you are active, if you are the kind of person that hears about a problem and has to act immediately, there's a lesson here. For four months, let's just read it that way. For four months, uh, he prays about this. And then on the 20th year of King Artaxerxes, when wine was brought for him, I took the wine and gave it to the king. And something's going to happen that's important. But we need to kind of hit the pause button just for a second. People can generally be divided into either activists or contemplatives. An activist hears about a problem and has to do something immediate. Like they are active. Uh, prayer doesn't come easy for a, an activist. I mean, they, they're like, I've got to do it now. Uh, if you know an activist, then if they say, I'm going to call you, that means I'm going to call you like immediately. I'll call you before you get home. I mean, I'm going to call you. Contemplatives, however, they think about the issue. They pray about the issue. Uh, if a contemplative says, I'm going to call you, that means before you die, I'll give you a call. I mean, eventually, uh, I'll get back with you, but I'm going to think about it first. And so, what's really important about Nehemiah is he's... He's a combination, and it's good, probably good to be a combination of both. And, and he, before he acts, he prays. And it wasn't like a little prayer. It was a four-month-long prayer and thought process about what can be done for Jerusalem. It's really important to get this. You don't just have to act. Now, here's what's interesting. If an activist tells you about a problem... They want you to solve it immediately. And they're always really okay with you saying, can I think about it for a little bit? It's okay to think about things for a little bit. And so Nehemiah, he says, okay, I'm going to think about this. I'm going to pray about this. I'm going to fast on this for a while. And for four months, he fasts. And then he goes to the king, Artaxerxes, which is a cool name, by the way. Now, we're going to call him Artie because that's a little easier. And the thing about this is, the reason Jerusalem doesn't have a wall is because of Artaxerxes. He wouldn't let them have a wall. So now Nehemiah has been thinking through this whole process, and it's like, okay, I'm going to have to get Artaxerxes, my king, to change his mind about his foreign policy. I don't know if you know this, but kings don't like to admit they're wrong. Uh, it's sort of the same with presidents. They don't kind of like that, or governors, or whatever. They don't like to admit wrongness. And so, Nehemiah, maybe it's not, you, you were wrong, but hey, let's think differently about this. And so, for four months, he prays, and then God opens the door. So, when the timing is right, you act. And look at what he says. Then the king said to me, what is it you want? Now, uh, we don't have this part in there, but uh, uh, Nehemiah goes to the king, and the king notices his, his demeanor has changed. Have you ever noticed, if you've been around somebody that's troubled, you just know it, you see it on their face? I think the king saw it on his face, and so that's why he asked the question, What's, what is it you want? 
And then I, one more prayer, by the way. Never, you can't pray too much. Then I prayed to the God of heaven, and I answered the king, if it pleases the king, and if your servant has found favor in his sight, let, me, uh, let him send me to the city in Judah where my ancestors are buried so that I can rebuild it. King, I'm, I'm just going to ask for this. Will you allow me to undo what you've done? If you're going to make that ask, you better have prayed about it. Now, it's really interesting to me. The Bible talks about this often. You don't have because you don't ask. It is a principle in life that really, not every time you ask are you going to get the, the answer you want, but how are you going to know if you don't ask? And, and Nehemiah wasn't certain Artaxerxes was going to say yes to his request, but how would you know if you don't ask? And Nehemiah isn't bashful. He asks, hey, can I go be re rebuild the city? Oh, yeah, I got another request. I also asked him, I said to him, if it pleases the king, may I have letters to the governors of the trans-Euphrates so that they will provide me safe conduct until I arrive at Judah. Can I have a passport? I'm going to go through some countries because I'm far, far away from Israel. Can I have a passport? I'm going to go through some countries that may not be amenable to me as a Jew, but if you, King Artaxerxes, give me a letter of permission to travel, then I can get through every border. I'll have safe passage. Oh, oh yeah, and one more thing, King. And may I have a letter to Asaph, the keeper of the royal park, so he will give me timber to make beams for the gates of the citadel by the temple and for the city wall and for the residence I will occupy. Uh, King. I'm going to need to go to Home Depot, and can I have your credit card? That, that's what that verse is right there. I'm going to go to Home Depot, and I need your credit card. Is that okay? So, King, number one, can I go rebuild the city that you have let get, get into disrepair? And will you give me a passport to get there, and can I have the credit card to pay for it? <laughs> People with a holy discontentment, with a passion, are incredibly bold. And look at the verse. Look at that, what happens. And because the gracious hand of my God was on me, the king granted my request. I love the humility. He, he doesn't say because I was, have a winsome personality. I was able to convince the king. Or because I was um, uh, good at talking. Uh, because I had a, a persuasive argument. Because the gracious hand of my God was upon me. You, you know, I, I, I like it. He, he, hey, because God heard my prayer, guided my actions, then the things worked out the way they were, were supposed to. And Nehemiah makes the journey and he gets to the city and he does something really important. Don't, don't miss this. He gets there and at night he makes a survey of the town. So in the story it reads that Nehemiah mounts a horse and he rides around the outskirts of the city just to see if what he had heard is actually true. Now remember, he's going on a report from his brother. So now he's at the city, he needs to find out if what he'd heard is true. I don't know if you've ever experienced this, but sometimes what you hear really isn't true. And so, he wants to see for himself. Th this is what's important. 
when we see things that make us uncomfortable, we have a tendency to look away. If something comes on television I don't want to see, I change the channel. What Nehemiah does is he exposes himself to the problem which just sort of fans the flames in his heart. When you have a passion, you don't look away, you run toward it. And so Nehemiah runs toward it. Now, he says to the people, you see the trouble we're in. Jerusalem lies in ruins and its gates have been burned with fire. What I have been told is true. What my brother said to me is accurate. We need to do something. <laughs> what, what he's saying is this. If you've ever moved into an apartment or a new house, when you first move in, you notice, oh, that light switch is crooked. Or the baseboard right there is smudged. Or there's a big hole in the wall right there. You know, it could be big, it could be little. Uh, there's a cobweb on the chandelier. You, you notice it when you first move in. You live there a little while, and all of a sudden, that crooked switch, crooked switch, eh, it's, eh, it's not that big a deal. I could fix it, I choose not to. Uh, you know, the smudge on the baseboard, eh, how big a deal is that? The hole in the wall, it's, um, it adds ambiance. You know, it's like, uh, you start to look at things differently. You, start, you stop noticing stuff. <laughs> the cobweb, it adds a little panache. And so, uh, uh, you think to yourself, okay, um, I, could, I could fix it, I just choose not to. Now, when do you get motivated to fix the things that you should have been fixing the whole time? When your mother-in-law is coming over. Uh, that, that's, that's it. I mean, when somebody's coming over that you want to impress, all of a sudden, everything changes. So Nehemiah goes to the... He's like, guys... You see the trouble we're in, right? Have you noticed that the, the gates are down and they're burned with fire and you don't have a wall? I mean, it's like a hole in the wall, except there's no wall. There's a big hole because there's nothing. And you don't have any gates. And hey, boys, um, it's really important that we do something. And they get motivated. It, sometimes it just takes one guy to get you motivated. And Nehemiah gets them motivated. And they reply, um, he says, Come, let us rebuild the wall of Jerusalem. And we will no longer be in disgrace. And I also told them about the gracious hand of my God on me and what the king had said to me. And they replied, Let us start rebuilding. We, we've obviously got God on our side. I mean, uh, the story of Nehemiah, when he goes to the Jerusalem and he says, Boys, you're not going to believe this. I heard about the problem. I prayed about it. I went to the king. I asked the king if I could come rebuild the wall. He said yes. I asked the king if I could have safe passage. He said yes. He wrote me a passport. I asked the king if he'd pay for it. And he said yes. And then all, all, all the people were like, let's start. When, when you see God's hand on something, it's hard to not be motivated. And when you see something that needs to be done, you do it. If God puts this holy discontent in your life, you do it. I saw this really interesting report, and I'm going to show it to you now, uh, about some difficulty 
in a high school and some men who did something about it. Look at this. When the SOS went up at a troubled school, who answered the call? A bunch of DADs. Here's CBS's Steve Hartman on the road. Not many good news stories begin in such a bad news way. It happened last month here at Southwood High School in Shreveport, Louisiana. Plagued with violence. Over the course of three days, another fight. 23 students arrested for fighting. Massive police response. But strangely, there hasn't been another incident since. Perhaps in part because of this most unusual crisis intervention team. Nobody here has a degree in school counseling. No majors in criminal justice. No, no. Your qualifications are? Well, Dad, we decided the best people who can take care of our kids are who? For us. So Michael Lafitte started Dads on Duty. We're out doing what we do for our babies. A group of about 40 Southwood dads who now hang out at the school in shifts. Let's go. Today, any negative energy that enters the building has to run a gauntlet of good parenting. What's going on, buddy? You moving fast. I like that horse. I immediately felt a form of safety. We stopped fighting. People started going to class. How could that be? You ever heard of a look? A look? Dads it's have just... the power to do that? Yes. <laughs> not many people know it, but yes. <laughs> let's go, let's go. But it's not just the firm stares and stern warnings. Let's make it to class, my son. It's also the dad jokes. <laughs> they just make funny jokes like, oh, hey, your student's untied, but it's really not untied. <laughs> and they hate it. They're so embarrassed by it. And it's that perfect mix of tough love and gentle ribbing that dads do so well that has helped transform this school. The school has really just been, like, happy, and you can feel it. Which is why the dads plan to keep coming to Southwood indefinitely. Because not everybody has the father figure, the father figure at home. Or a male, period, in their life. Like so that. just to be here makes a big difference. Do you think you stumbled onto something here? Absolutely. I think absolutely. absolutely. Yeah. They'd like to start chapters of Dads on Duty throughout Louisiana. What's up, baby boy? And hope to eventually take on the country. All right. Without a fight. <laughs> Steve Hartman, on the road, in Shreveport, Louisiana. I love that video. Um, it went black, great. That's awesome. I, I love the story because they saw a problem, they did something about it. This is what you have to do. If you see something that has to be done, and it's your passion, not everything's going to be your passion. But when you find your passion, you go for it. Now, back to Nehemiah. Think about the sacrifice this guy makes. He's, he's living large. He's got all he wants. He's comfortable. But holy discontentment will say to you, there's more to life than comfort. Can you do, shouldn't you do something more with your life than just work for comfort? Now, story doesn't end there. Let's go on. Expect opposition. When Sambalat, these are some, some cats that find out about their building project. When Sambalite the Horonite, when Tobiah the Ammonite official, and Geshem the Arab heard about it, they mocked and ridiculed us. What is this you are doing, they ask? Are you rebelling against the king? When they say, uh, what, are the, what is this you are doing? They're not really asking a question. It's like when you have a kid and you say, do you want a spanking? You're not really at, I mean, what do you expect your kid to say? Well, I've been a little mischievous. Maybe a spanking would do me good. I mean, it's not what they're going to say. They're not asking, ask, asking for information. 
They're just saying, hey, it's a technical expression. They're saying, hey, we're, we're in opposition to you. And what's really interesting about this, Sambalat, he, he is from the north. Now understand, Israel to the west is the Mediterranean Sea. But this is really interesting. Sambalat is sort of from the north. And uh, Tobiah is sort of from the east. And Gershom, Geshem is sort of from uh, the south. And, and so the idea is, all around Israel, every place there are people around Israel, there is opposition. It, it is like a lot of opposition. It's basically, Nehemiah is saying, we were completely opposed. And I don't know if you think like this, but I do sometimes. I think, you know, if, I'm, if I get a passion for God and I'm doing it, then everything ought to be really easy. <laughs> but life's tough. You'd think Nehemiah was like, okay, I got permission from the king, man, this is going to go sweet. And it really doesn't go sweet. He's got opposition. And, and it's, no soldier enters a battle and says, wait, oh, wait a minute, they're shooting at me. Well, yeah, you're in a battle. No football player ever gets on a field and is carrying the ball and says, hey, wait a minute, these people are trying to tackle me. Unless you're playing South Carolina. Uh, uh, nobody ever does that. Sorry, I'll, I'll do Clemson next week. Uh, next service, I, I'll, I'll be equal opportunity. Which means you have to do the next thing. You persist. So Nehemiah, I sent messengers to them with this reply. I am carrying out a great project and cannot go down. So they kept writing him letters. Hey, Nehemiah, let's... Um, Let's meet for coffee, these three antagonists. Hey, let's meet for a, a, a conference. Let's have a meeting. <laughs> the, the, one of the best ways to disrupt progress is to have a meeting. And Nehemiah's like, Whoa, what, boys, um, I'm carrying out a great project and cannot go down. Why should the work stop while I leave it and go down to you? I understand you've got concerns. But here's the life lesson you really got to learn. Refuse to try to appease the unappeasable. It would not matter what Nehemiah said to those guys. They were never going to be for him. So he made an, a, a, an assessment. <laughs> hey, I'm not going to convince them anyway. So I'm not going to waste my time anyway. Now, that doesn't stop him. Look, and by the way, this is, I, I, love, I love ancient trash talk. This is ancient trash talk. When Sambalat heard that we were rebuilding the wall, he became angry, was greatly incensed, and he ridiculed the Jews. And in the presence of his associates at the meeting that uh, Nehemiah didn't attend, and the army of Samaria, he said, What are these feeble Jews doing? Will they restore their wall? Will they offer sacrifices? Will they finish in a day? Very sarcastic. Can they bring the stones back to life from those heaps of rubble burned as they are. And then uh, Tobiah joins in, uh, who was at his side, and he said, what are they building? Even a fox climbing on it would break down their walls of stone. And they all got a little chuckle. <laughs> Those chumps. Nehemiah just put his nose to the grindstone and worked. Meanwhile, the people in Judah said, the strength of the laborers is giving out, and there is so much rubble that we cannot build the wall. And here's a truth that you understand. You know it intuitively. You do what you want to do. You do what you want to do. 
You can make excuses all day long. I can make excuses all day long. But I know this, if I want to do it, I'll do it. I can't save money. Well, yeah, you can. If you choose to. I read this story this week, and it was like, I can't believe this actually happened. Back in 2012, Hurricane Sandy hit the Northeast. And everything shut down, except one sort of rogue Starbucks in Times Square, around Times Square in New York. And people were walking through, and understand this, this thing did, this hurricane did, um, $68 billion in damage and killed 286 people. And yet there are folks in New York City walking through a hurricane to get Starbucks. You know, we have a word for that in Kentucky. That's called stupid. Uh, and that's what they were doing. And this one girl says this. I, I can't even... Her name is Bethany. She says... Um, uh, she walks 10 blocks to get a cup of coffee with her one-year-old daughter. And she says this. I saw on Facebook they were open... It was scary not having Starbucks. Yeah, you want to know what else is scary? A hurricane. Uh, you do what you want to do. It's the truth of it. And man, they put their nose to the grindstone. So the wall was built, completed in 52 days. 52 days. It's amazing, actually, if you think about it. I mean, when do you ever see a, a construction project that was ahead of time and under budget... And done by government workers. I mean, it, it was amazing, honestly. Like a miracle. That's what happened. Now, when you accomplish something great, what do you need to do? You have a party, right? They had a party. So they have a party. Ezra the priest brought out the law before the assembly. They're having a party, and, which was made up of men and women and all who were able to understand. And he read it aloud from daybreak to noon. Wow, that's, a, that's, a, that's preaching right there. From daybreak to noon. Five, six hours of preaching. Everybody was enthralled. That's one of my favorite verses. Uh, they were excited. And then they were broken. Because Ezra read the law and they were like, oh, we are... We're really not good at this. And in the midst of the party, they get depressed. And I love Nehemiah. I love him. Look what he says. Go, <laughs> guys. He basically says, hey, there's going to be time to repent. But go enjoy choice food. Not, not just food. <laughs> not eggplant. Not Brussels sprouts. Go enjoy the good stuff. Go and get yourself a T-bone. Go enjoy choice, choice food and sweet drinks. No Diet Coke. Sweet drinks. In fact, uh, it's sweet tea at Popeye's. I mean, that is the sweetest stuff. It's like syrup. And, and send some of those who have nothing prepared. And this is the day that is sacred to the Lord. Do not grieve today, for the joy of the Lord is your strength. Life's hard, isn't it? I, I mean, I, I try to mix in a little humor on Sundays because for six days of the week, out there, they'll beat you to death if you're not careful. And sometimes you, I know people come in here and y'all just beat up. You've had it rough. And you have a job you don't enjoy or you've had a mechanical problem with your car or your heater ain't working at your house. Your body's not 
functioning the way you want it to. I love that verse. The joy of the Lord is our strength. <laughs> we, ought, we ought to enjoy the Lord. And he says, look, boys and girls, ladies and gentlemen, the joy of the Lord. That's where we're going to lean into. Now, we got some work to do. I love Nehemiah. we got some work to do. But today, we celebrate. Next Sunday, we have our meal together, our family feast. It's very exciting. And I just like that we can get together because there are times where you just need to be thankful. And that's what Nehemiah was pointing them toward. Hey, guys, let's just be thankful. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this day, this word of encouragement today. And Lord, as you show us, as you give us a passion, help us to be people who follow that passion and do what you call us to do. We pray this humbly in Jesus' name. Amen.